You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello, and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and yes, we're back with another fantastic interview episode. Today's guest is both a practitioner and a passionate advocate of entrepreneurship and technology translation in Australia. Currently the CEO of the in-house venture fund at the Australian National University, Nick McNaughton's career has covered almost every aspect of the startup ecosystem, from working as an early employee of two rapidly growing software companies during the dot-com boom, to being inspired to create and ultimately sell his own startup, and most recently, in helping many other founders on their own journeys as an angel investor, VC fund manager, advisor, and non-executive director. Over this career, Nick has truly understood the potential of research translation, but has also experienced many of the systemic and personal barriers that can hold projects back. In this interview, Nick shares some fascinating perspectives on how the Australian ecosystem has grown over the last decade and how we can continue to improve this system into the future. I can't wait to share his thoughts with you. So without further ado, Nick McNaughton, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you. So Nick, we should probably start with your current role as CEO of ANU Connect Ventures. I understand you've just done a 10-year review of that program. Could you tell us a bit about that venture fund and, and what it is you are accomplishing in the ACT? ANU Connect Ventures, Leo, was the very first VCLP in Australia. It was incorporated in 2005, and it came about because two quite visionary organisations saw that venture capital was important for the commercialisation of academic research. The ANU is one of the 50% owners of the fund, and Spirit Super, a $25 billion industry super fund, are the other co-partner. I'm the CEO. I've been the CEO for nearly nine years. I joined the fund in 2013 and we have been commercialising discoveries and inventions that come out of the ANU, but also from the ACT since 2005. So I'd love to give the audience a sense of how you came to be in this position, Nick, because you were born in England and you haven't necessarily followed an academic path. In fact, you are much more industry based. What can you tell us about your earlier education in England? And I guess what inspired you to start this career in entrepreneurship and innovation and and technology? Yeah, so actually, Leo, I'm not academically very strong. I'm I'm an average um, student. But the undergraduate degree that you choose can often open up avenues of um, work that you may not have considered before. I was one of the first students to go through a business studies degree that had computing as a very important element. In fact, the degree I did was computing in business. And what that set me up for was a opportunity to ride this wave of personal computers that started in the 1980s and is still rolling around the world today. So I managed to build my career on the personal computer. So I worked for a distributor of peripherals. Uh, Then I got um, a bit of wanderlust and decided to come backpacking across the world to Australia. 
And uh, when I arrived in Australia, I worked for another technology company that was in telecommunications called Telecom Australia, which now we all know is, is Telstra. And so I was very fortunate, Leo, to be able to get early visibility to what was going on in the technology space. And I decided quite early on that the place I wanted to be was working for an American technology company. I felt that the Americans were leading the charge in terms of this wave that was rolling around the world. So I, I set myself a task of uh, working for an American technology company. And I was very fortunate to be able to get uh, a role with the software subsidiary of Apple Computer in the UK. They were called Claris. And after two years, they sent me out to Hong Kong to set up the Asia Pacific region for them. And really what that did was it introduced me to some incredible mentors. In this case, the person I worked for was a guy called David Orfeo. He was the head of global sales for, for Claris. And he became someone that was a really important mentor for me. And I set my sights on replicating David's success. Yeah, that's a really important point, Nick. The, the idea of mentorship and connecting with people throughout this journey is so important to so many of the people I speak to. What can you tell us about your particular relationship with David and, and what should people look for in a mentor when they're starting these journeys? Um, firstly, you, ha you have to be inspired by the individual. So David is a very inspiring person. Um, since he left Claris, he went on to be the CEO of a dot-com one startup called Allaire. I worked for him again at Allaire. I was head of Asia Pacific for four years as that company went to be a billion-dollar corporation listed on NASDAQ and ult ultimately got acquired by Adobe. Um, David then left and moved into venture capital and set up his own venture capital firm called General Catalyst, which now has, you know, in excess of $5 billion of funds under management. And every step that David moved forward, I thought, I want to do that too. So I really was inspired by him, Leo, to go from being an executive who worked for an American technology company uh, through to being an investor. I've been an angel investor for many years and then through to actually being uh, running a, a venture capital fund. Yeah, I definitely do want to discuss those investing experiences with you, Nick. But before we move on, I should note for the audience that these periods we're discussing with Claris and Allaire, they're in the late 90s and the early 2000s, basically the middle of the dot-com boom. I just wondered, as an employee in these software companies, what was your experience with that period of time when so much was going on in the software industry? And obviously, valuations were, were wild in both directions. What was the atmosphere like on the ground floor in these companies during this period? Incredibly exciting. You, you, you feel like you're changing the world. You are changing the world. When we were at Allaire, um, literally uh, Netscape had just come out in 1996 or gone public in 1996 and that was the first browser and everybody loved the fact that you know you could put up your own bulletin board effectively globally but it really didn't have any smarts or logic and what Allaire did was they created an uh, HTML extension language called the Cold Fusion Markup language and that allowed websites to become dynamic so you could have forms, you could have logic, you could have build applications 
and uh, cold fusion became a, a global phenomena. We were growing at roughly 350% revenue growth year over year for four consecutive years. Uh, we, we grew from, you know, I was employee number 50, and when I left, we were 600 people, so very rapid growth. And to go on a journey like that as a young, a young person, it's incredibly inspiring. And you want to work seven days a week because you feel like you're changing the world. I saw how being in the right place at the right time with the right opportunity, not only can it be thrilling and inspiring, but it, it can also be financially rewarding. And I look back with great fondness at my four years at Allaire. Uh, the people that I work with, I'm still really good friends with, even though I may not have seen many of them for two decades. And it's one of those life-changing journeys that I went on. For Nick, these formative experiences at Claris and Allaire were the start of a lifelong obsession with entrepreneurship and technology. In the subsequent two decades, Nick has worked in at least 20 organisations and almost all of them could be characterised as either an early stage technology company or an organisation that supports them. One of the most significant of these was a startup Nick co-founded and built from the ground up, an early internet marketing company called Zucoda. I asked Nick why this was the right time to start a venture of his own. So Leo, in 2004, I'd done quite a lot in my life, but I had been on somebody else's journey. I felt like my career resume was missing being a startup founder or a startup co-founder. So one of my very good friends, York Hines, who is a tech god, a coding god, um, he and I used to kick around ideas. And at that time, blogs were very, very popular. Lots of people were putting up their own blogs. But we saw an opportunity for a widget that allowed bloggers to be able to reach out to their audience via email. And so we created this widget. Uh, it really was very, very simple. We collected all of the emails for your newsletters. And then we provided a platform for allowing that newsletter to be in your look and feel. So when someone received it in their inbox, it was in the same branding and livery uh, as your own website. And we also provided them with the ability to put ads in those emails as well. And this became incredibly popular at the time that we sold it, which was only 18 months or so after we founded it. We had 10 million email addresses in the system. And we were acquired by a, a Florida-based company who focused on social, social marketing, social media marketing. Wow. 10 million users in 18 months is phenomenal growth, Nick. But I'm glad that you mentioned the trade sale at the end of this journey because selling businesses is something you've done a few times, not only for your startup, but something that you've advised other businesses on as well. What can you tell us about how you go about preparing a company for this kind of transaction and how you negotiate with the acquiring party to get them to buy into this story and, and ultimately dip into their own pockets to, to purchase a business outright? Yes. And, and why do I like trade sales over listings? Uh, I'll just share with your readers why or listeners why. Um, 
trade sales, you get all of the cash compensation up front. So there's no escrow, there's no earn out. Um, they're acquiring 100% of the shares at the time of the transaction. And so you, you basically get your payout at the day that the transaction closes. So I prefer I prefer trade sales over, over listings. Um, but in preparing a, an organization for that day, you really have to be ready to be acquired from day one. So all of your systems, all of your processes, all of your documentation, all of your governance and reporting obligations, your tax obligations, all of those things must be done so that when someone comes knocking on the door saying, look, we really like you and we think us going on the next journey together makes sense, you want to be ready for the process, which is called due diligence. Um, due diligence is incredibly time consuming. It basically allows the acquiring company to look over every single document, system, process, contract that you have. And they basically make a decision as to whether they want to acquire you based on the quality of your due diligence. So if you prepare your company at the very beginning to say, I ultimately want to get acquired, then when that knock on the door happens, you're not having to scramble to get your house in order. So, so this trade sale, this successful sale of your startup, it clearly was financially impactful for you and your family. And it kind of marks a transition between you being mostly an employee and a founder and now to move on to a phase that's around investing and supporting other startups. I know you've been involved in both the angel and the venture side of this space. Can we talk a little bit about, about Blue Cove Ventures, which I think is one of the first venture capital funds you're involved in? How did, how did you end up there? Yeah, so Leo, actually um, moving from being an angel investor to being a venture capitalist is, is very difficult. There are very few venture funds. Today, there are about 200 venture funds in Australia. But back then in 2005, you know, there was a handful of funds. And I wanted to move from just investing my own money to investing other people's money. And again, one of my global contacts uh, at the time in 2006, um, money was flowing around. There was great optimism. There was a great desire to um, reinvest in tech, that the tech wreck was over. Uh, there was a new inspired belief that, uh, you know, the internet and mobile phones were going to change the world. And I actually secured some money from a Japanese private equity company who wanted a scout in Australia to identify really good opportunities. And effectively, I was a one-man band. They, they provided me with some capital to invest. And I've rather fortunately invested in a Canberra company called WindLab. Uh, WindLab was a spin-out from CSIRO. In fact, it was the very first spin-out from CSIRO. In 2003, uh, I had uh, had visibility to them since 2004. They were a personal investee. And uh, then my fund, Bluco Ventures, partnered with Innovation Capital, which was uh, led by Mike Quinn and Roger Price, uh, to do the Series A. And then Len Lease Ventures came in. And um, that company IPO'd on the ASX in 2017 and got acquired just uh, a few months ago by Andrew Forrest's uh, um, Mindaroo Group. And look, I know this is probably old hat for you, but for the benefit of our audience who aren't in the investment space, can you walk us through the difference between angel investing, uh, venture capital investing, and I guess the stages of growth for a startup company? 
Yeah, so when uh, an organisation, which is a startup, is looking for fun funding, they typically start with the three Fs, friends, family and fools, because it's very risky at the early stage, Leo, for um, people who are putting their capital in at the very beginning. And usually those funds are from people who are closely related to the founders and believe in them and want to support them on their entrepreneurial journey. Then the next raise after that is the first seed round, and a seed round is typically up to $1 million. And that usually comes in from high net worth individuals, sometimes called angel investors. And then after the seed, you have your Series A. Um, the Series A is the first time you take money from an institutional investor like a venture capital firm. And typically you're raising three to five million dollars. And then you move up to Series B. A Series B raise is typically 10 to 15 million dollars, etc. Thanks for that summary, Nick. And I know you've been involved at various of these stages personally, I guess investing in your own companies, being an angel investor and through the Venture Capital Fund. And you actually became a director for the Australian Association of Angel Investors around 2010 or 2011. Now, I know the Australian investment landscape has been changing a lot over the last couple of decades and you've been right at the forefront of that. So can I just get your perspectives on, I guess, how much has changed in this ecosystem and the maturity that's been developing in Australian startup funding? It's changed dramatically. So um, I was part of a group here in Canberra called Capital Angels. They were one of the first syndicated angel investment groups in the country. They did some really great pioneering work. And uh, there was a, an investor in Melbourne called Jordan Green, who was part of Melbourne Angels. And he brought together a, all of the angel groups around Australia and created the Australian Angel Investor Association. I was part of that group for just over a year and left due to other commitments. But what we've seen since then is we've seen the angel investment community grow dramatically. And um, personal investment or angel investment is now seen as a viable path for individuals. So the Sydney Angels group is, is vast. They, they have a hundreds of members. They have typically 80 investors that uh, dial into every pitch. They do eight plus meetings a year. They have three opportunities every meeting. They've funded some really iconic uh, Australian companies like Clarity Pharmaceuticals that IPO just this year. And some of those investors did really well out of that. And so um, the angel investors who are bold enough to be in this space and willing to put some of their excess capital to work in this asset class, they potentially have the opportunity to make upsides. The caveat to that, Leo, is it's highly risky and you will lose in some cases. So you have to have a portfolio approach so that you've got more than one shot on goal. Thanks for that, Nick. It's some very sage advice for any aspiring angel investors in the audience. But can we take us forward a couple of years now? Because by 2015, you had come back to the academic space to some extent and joined ANU Ventures, uh, ultimately becoming its CEO. And I think, as you mentioned at the start, this venture capital fund was established with help from ANU, the university, and also a superannuation fund. But it has since grown to encompass multiple universities and multiple external partners. 
And it seems like this ANU Connect Ventures now operates on a bit of a hybrid model. You've got some funds that operate on a grants basis where the researchers get funding, but they don't necessarily have to give away any equity in a company. And those are in addition to the more traditional venture capital funds where you do expect equity in return for your investment. Can you talk us through that dynamic and I guess also how you balance the needs of the university partners and the superannuation funds who might be looking for different things out of this relationship? So there's two funds we manage. The first one is the Discovery Translation Fund. The money for that doesn't come from our institutional LPs. The money for that comes from the three universities who are part of the DTF, the University of Canberra, the ANU and Charles Sturt University. So the university basically is funding ideas themselves, but they've engaged ANU Connect Ventures and my team to manage the fund and do an independent assessment of the of the idea discovery or invention and we made it a grant because at that stage when a researcher or scientist is still trying to assess whether their discovery has a commercial future you don't want to go through the process of establishing an expensive structure like a proprietary limited company. So the, the DTF is the step before you secure venture capital. And what it does is it answers one very simple question. Does this idea, invention or discovery have a commercial pathway? Um, the review that we did basically said that nine out of 10 of the projects, and by the way, we funded over 100 projects through, through that program in the decade, um, nine out of 10 of them, the answer is no, the commercial pathway is not correct for you. You should publish for the good of humanity. And it's been incredibly valuable to go on that journey for all of the researchers who decided to go down that path. Now, the one in 10 are really very interesting to me because the one in 10 are the ones who we have identified that a commercialization journey is one that has merit in further work. And clearly, you've got some success stories and examples of this pathway in action now. Are there any you'd like to highlight that you think exemplify what this pathway can provide for a researcher come entrepreneur? So we have got two really fabulous examples of high-tech success stories from Australia. The first one is a company called Liquid Instruments. They came out of the Faculty of Physics and the pioneering researcher behind that is Professor Daniel Shaddock. Daniel's an extremely interesting individual because he's academically well-credentialed but he also stepped out to join industry for about a decade and spent eight years at the Jet Propulsion Labs over in uh, California. And what Daniel was working on at the time, he was working on some deep space missions. He was working on the uh, identification of gravitational waves. He was working on the LISA missions. And he had the opportunity to learn some very interesting capabilities that NASA used. One of those learnings was that these deep space missions use a chip called an FPGA, a Field Programmable Gate Array. And why they use them is because the circuitry, the, the logic of the chip can actually be reprogrammed remotely. So unlike your computer chip or the chip in your mobile phone, which the silicon cannot be reprogrammed, an FPGA can be reprogrammed. 
So once Daniel had finished one of these key projects, he came back to Australia to be uh, one of the leaders of the physics uh, department here at the ANU. And their funding for one of these projects came to an end and he had 11 of his team members who were world class that he really wanted to continue to keep together. So Daniel looked around his lab and saw that he had racks and racks and racks of single purpose scientific test and measurement devices. So he had lots of oscilloscopes, um, spectrum analyzers, waveform generators, PID controllers, etc. And Daniel thought, why have we got single purpose devices? Why can't we use a brain like an FPGA and reprogram it so that it can be multiple devices? So that was his original um, theory. In Daniel's case, he came to us back in 2014. He applied for the DTF program. He secured $100,000 from the fund. It's a grant, there's no liability, Leo, so uh, he didn't have to pay it back. But he used that money to create a minimum viable product uh, of the of the device. Uh, the device is called a Moku, Moku Lab. And Daniel, with six months and, and using his researchers, came back with a, a working prototype, a minimum viable product. We were so impressed with it that we immediately started the process of setting up a spin-out company um, for him, uh, and that company became Liquid Instruments. And Liquid Instruments has gone from the lab at the ANU to now having 50 staff globally, roughly 35 of those are based here in the ACT. They have three product lines, the Moku um, Go, which is aimed at students, the Moku Lab aimed at researchers, and then the Moku Pro, which is aimed at uh, global enterprises. And they sell uh, in over 30 countries. It's localized into seven different languages and they are growing incredibly fast. So Liquid Instruments is a great example of the commercialization of university IP. And I want to spend a moment, uh, Leo, just sharing with the audience why there is significant ongoing benefit to research institutions, even if they spin out IP. So when Daniel first came up with the idea, we weren't sure whether we should move Daniel and his team off campus. Um, Daniel and his team really weren't sure whether Liquid Instruments was going to be successful, so they were worried about their future academic career and the damage to their career if they stepped out for a few years and got off the academic um, promotional treadmill. So we came up with, at the time, quite an innovative idea. We said, why don't you stay on campus, stay in your lab, but we will incorporate liquid instruments, we'll raise money for the company, and then we'll use those funds that are in the company to sign commercial research agreements with the university. And we signed well over $3 million of research contracts with the ANU. Uh, we created a CRCP um, with liquid instruments, um, but we kept them on campus for the first four years. We even allowed the staff to have uh, co-roles. So many of them um, had some days a week as an academic and some days a week working for the company. And it allowed everybody to hedge their bets. 
if the company went on to be successful, we would have a discussion about everybody moving off campus at some point and going on this commercial journey. But in the formative years where the risk was highest and the uncertainty greatest, we gave them the comfort of continuing to be researchers and academics affiliated with the ANU. Now, I believe this is one of the most important approaches as Australia moves to trying to commercialise more research intensive IP. The university meritocracy is completely and utterly misaligned with commercialization of research. It rewards publication, it rewards citation, it rewards the securement of research grants, and it penalizes a researcher who gets distracted by trying to commercialize their work. So we believe this model that we came up with by providing research contracts back to the university is a really great way of allowing researchers to hedge their bets until they feel comfortable that the future commercial opportunity is uh, is, is viable and um, long term. That's fantastic, Nick. A, a great story and, and certainly great advocacy for the rights of researchers in this space. And this case you've talked about, it spawned a few questions in my mind. I'll try to tackle them one by one. The first is around conflict of interest, because I've witnessed in a few universities and large organizations more generally, there can be some quite restrictive policies around conflict of interest. And clearly these researchers who are part-time academic, part-time with the company, are working both sides. In fact, they have to in order for this venture to succeed. So my question is, how did ANU as an organization become comfortable with the kinds of conflicts of interest that are inherent in this entrepreneurial space? It's a very good question, Leo. I think that the importance of understanding the IP life cycle is fundamental to this. So Daniel and his team discovered that they could use FPGAs to be the brain of this instrument. They could have published that, but we had a conversation with Daniel. He worked closely with the ANU Technology Transfer Office. We considered all of the implications of the IP lifecycle and laid out a roadmap of what was the best way forward. Uh, one of the challenges, Leo, is at the moment, some researchers don't understand the importance of recognizing that there is an IP lifecycle and they publish key information or they put it on a PowerPoint that is discoverable or they reveal accidentally the secret source. And as you know, once that discovery is in the public domain, you can't patent it. So I think what was important here was, first of all, the sophistication of the researchers in their self-awareness that there were implications of the life cycle of the IP and then the ability to have a, a group of people who were experts in IP protection working with them to navigate this, uh, this uh, minefield of what do you do first and when do you protect it and in what order do you do those things. And I think Liquid Instruments is a very good example of them getting it right. So many of those academics who were part of the foundation of Liquid Instruments are still publishing uh, very actively. And so, you know, their academic credentials are continuing to grow and uh, mature. 
but also from a commercial perspective, we were able to make sure that the secret source that is the essence of liquid instruments was properly protected. Yeah, absolutely, Nick. There certainly is a need for academics to be more conscious about disclosures and what should and should not be protected in the intellectual property they are generating. There's another thing I want to touch on too, which you actually mentioned very early on in this interview, which is around incentives for academics, and perhaps it touches back to the conflict of interest item as well. So we obviously want to encourage researchers to create commercially relevant intellectual property and perhaps even take it forward as an entrepreneur. But often the time spent on this can be detrimental to their academic objectives. So what are the right mechanisms for incentivizing researchers to conduct commercial research? Is it, is it equity in the resulting companies? Is it extra grant funding for their research labs? How do you approach those conversations? It depends on what year you're in in the journey. So as you're aware, Leo, every researcher is judged partly on how much research income they bring into the institution and what publication cadence they have and what citation rate they have. So let's look at the first one. Uh, it's my strong belief that organisations, institutions that do spin out companies and allow those spin-out companies to then sign commercialization research agreements back with the institution uh, provides a really good way of allowing the researcher to hit their research income goals using external money. A very good example is another ANU Connect Ventures portfolio company called EpiAccess Therapeutics. They have a, a potential treatment for the uh, recurrence of cancer. And the discovery came out from the Professor Suda Rao lab. She went through the Discovery Translation Fund. They wanted to use a grant to do some mouse trials to test their thesis. We did that. The results were encouraging. And then we founded EpiAccess. We raised money for it. And then over the next five years, they signed 27 different research agreements with the University of Canberra to fund the Rao Lab. This EpiAccess became one of the top five research uh, partners for the University of Canberra for those uh, five years. And we were also able to use the R&D tax credit that came back into the company every year after we filed our tax return. We were able to use that um, credit to sign new research agreements with the University of Canberra. So in fact, every dollar that was invested in EpiAccess was leveraged many times over, signing more and more research agreements with the university. And again, I think this is another very important element, Leo, as Australia wants to try and accelerate the cadence of commercialising our research. That's a really interesting point, Nick. And the return on investment angle of this is fascinating because with a traditional venture capital fund, one that's not linked to an academic institution, the metrics of success are almost all financial. That might be profits in your invested companies, it might be dividends that are being paid out, but it's all wrapped up in this financial blanket and it's fairly clear what the fund objectives are. In your case, there's these other set of metrics around value to the university that's not dividends, but it's funding that's being used for future academic research. 
How do you report those return on investment metrics internally? And also, what does it mean to the different stakeholders? Because you've got both institutional investors and the research institutions themselves as part of your stakeholder network. How do those different entities view this type of return on investment that you're reporting in the fund? It's a good question. So the Discovery Translation Fund allows us to, first of all, identify talent, but secondly, road test that talent. Going on a commercialization journey is unlike anything a researcher or academic will have ever done before. And we use the Discovery Translation Fund to basically test whether a researcher can communicate well, can they course correct, can they uh, hit their KPIs, can they handle problems, etc. And we get to spend really close time with them over six to nine months before we have decided to make a big investment in them from the fund. The reason I like the DTF is because it helps us to see whether this talent is backable, investable, uh, but also it helps the researcher to understand the uh, implications of this journey that they're going to go on. Why does the super fund like this? Well, the super fund wants us to invest in de-risked opportunities. So the fact that the Discovery Translation Fund is not using their money, but it's using the university money to progress the idea, discovery and invention and de-risk the idea, discovery or invention is of great value to the super fund. By the time we put money in as a venture capital firm, we know uh, the, the team intimately, we know the market space very well, and we know what the uh, opportunity is. So I would argue to your listeners that having a translation fund is really important for Australia to street test the ideas, to identify talent, and to do that market validation to say, does this idea discovery or invention have the ability to go all the way on this commercial journey? And so, Leo, one of the things I wanted to share today is I'm lobbying, along with many other people, that a national translation fund is created so that we can take the learnings of the Discovery Translation Fund that we've been running here for the last decade and replicate its success. It's a key part of the research commercialization landscape and we are missing it at the moment. And uh, I've included this in our two submissions to the Tudge Review. And I'm hoping that uh, all this lobbying uh, leads to the federal government putting some money behind a national translation fund that will help every researcher go on this journey. That's fantastic, Nick. And I'm certain that a national translation fund is something that the Lab Notes audience can get behind as well. So we hope that that comes to fruition. And it's probably also a good place to leave the ANU Ventures part of the interview because you've got one other company we'd like to talk about. It's your most recent one. You've actually founded it alongside your role as CEO of ANU Ventures. The company's called Campus Plus. Could you tell us what that company is and does? Yes, Leo. So I'm paid three days a week with ANU Connect Ventures, and I really appreciate that role and love it. Uh, but the work that we did through the Discovery Translation Fund 
uh, led us to working very closely with a range of universities. And what I saw through that interaction was that universities collectively are struggling with industry engagement, unique IP identification, protection and commercialization, and finally, researcher commercialization training. And so about 18 months ago, I founded Campus Plus for the two days a week that I'm not paid by ANUCV. And we've been surprised by how perfect our market timing was. Today, we have 13 university clients who engage us to help them with those four elements. And our flagship uh, offering is the professional development webinar series called PD+. This year, we've run 14 one-hour webinars that talk about um, the IP commercialization journey. And next year, Leo, we've expanded it to 30 webinars. We think that part of this upgrading of academic institutions to be commercialization ready includes education and professional development. And so we've been really surprised that on some of our webinars, we've had up to 200, 250 researchers who are curious about this uh, journey and want to educate themselves on what the implications are and, and what the opportunities are. And so we use PD Plus again as talent identification. We would argue that if a researcher is on a webinar about IP protection or spin out startups or how do I raise money for my spin out company, there's a good chance that they're thinking about going on a commercialization journey. So not only is PD Plus very valuable for achieving the professional development upgrade of many of our researchers, but it's also a talent identification mechanism for us to find our future commercialization leaders. Well, that's probably a perfect segue because the final question we've been asking all of our guests this season is what advice would you give for a young entrepreneur or a young researcher who's at the precipice of one of these deep tech commercialization journeys. If our audience today was sitting in a PD Plus course, what would we see on the slide that says important advice for researchers? Be open-minded, seek experts and consult with them. Find a mentor who has got expertise and has been in your sector. And thirdly, try and find somebody who is two or three years ahead of you. You can learn an enormous amount from somebody who is in year four when you're in year one. So um, I think that uh, all of those four pieces of advice are uh, important as a researcher decides whether they want to go on this commercialization journey. Well, Nick McNaughton, it's been a fascinating chat. Thank you so much for your time on the Lab Notes podcast. Leo, thank you so much. And I'd love your listeners to connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, just search Nick McNaughton in LinkedIn. The power of the network is very valuable for all of us to um, achieve the goals that this country wants to achieve over the next decade. So thank you for having me on your podcast today. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. 
Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing. <laughs>